0: So what I found is that in the design process, try and stick as close as you can to the universal elements of beauty as opposed to the stylish or fattish elements of beauty.
1: You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help
0: take your developing to the next level. Now here's your host, Justin Getty.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 34 of the show. Thanks for joining me. I trust you are well and your projects are moving along nicely. I am well and have just returned from a short trip to the US. And while I was there, I caught up with architect-turned-property-developer Kirk Miller in San Francisco. It was very interesting to speak with another North American developer and hear how things are done in that market. Before we get to that discussion, here's a quick update on what I've been up to. We have lodged our application with the State Planning Tribunal, called VCAT, for a review of the Council's decision to refuse to give us a planning permit. Our hearing date is set down for November, so I've been working on putting a team in place to represent us at the hearing. It is going to be a costly exercise as we need legal representation in the court and then a number of expert witnesses will need to review our plans and provide advice on whether anything needs changing, plus the daily costs of the court hearing which we pay. I remain optimistic we will get a good result in a tribunal where our application will be assessed on its planning merits. We've just also settled on the two properties that we purchased for the project. One of them is leased, so I'll continue renting out the place, and the other property requires tenants, so I'm working with a local agent to get it leased. I'm also turning my attention to putting another project together and would like to have that done by the end of the year. And I'm currently pondering whether to offer some mentoring services to wannabe developers out there. So, plenty of good stuff keeping me busy. Okay, on to today's guest, trained architect turned property developer Kirk Miller. Kirk started off his developing career in California before taking on some projects in Canada. Kirk brings an interesting perspective to the table because of his design background and also due to the challenges of developing in a place like San Francisco which presents physical constraints as well as social ones. In this discussion we cover the key lessons that Kirk has learnt in his career, the power of timeless design, and how development works in the North American markets. I'm sure you'll enjoy this discussion with Kirk, and I started off by asking him what food he would eat until he was sick. Chocolate. Any particular type of chocolate? Used to be milk, but now it's dark. From any particular kind of region, do you have a particular cocoa content that you like to to achieve? (laughs) Pure. Really?
0: 100%? 98.
1: 98. I think it gets pretty hard to get 100% uh, chocolate these days. (laughs) Now, Kirk, we're here to talk about property developing, and you're a North American property developer, it would be fair to say.
0: Yes, it's a Californian and Canadian.
1: California. Well, you're our second North American guest on the show, so it's great to have you. Thank you. Can you give us a bit of a background on some of the the projects that you've done?
0: Primarily uh, high-rise, low-density luxury condominiums. Cut my teeth on Russian Hill in San Francisco. And one of those configurations would be a concrete podium with three or four stories of wood frame above it. But real start was hillside development, either uphill or downhill hillside development.
1: Well, we're here in San Francisco, and it's pretty much uphill and downhill everywhere. Correct. So that's pretty standard construction, I would have thought. Increases the cost. Well, I do know that building on a slope does increase cost, because my last project had a slight slope, but certainly nothing like San Francisco. And so can you just share a little bit more about how you got into property developing? So you're an architect by trade?
0: Training, training, training in profession. profession. Uh, well, I realized when I was architecture school and I happened to go to a very, very good school uh, that uh, architects are the last one's hired and the first one's fired. They have, uh, They don't have any power. Everyone thinks they can be an architect. Think you can be an architect. House can be an architect. Uh, whereas you can't be a lawyer, you can't be a doctor. Because there's there's it, it's not a it's not an absolute necessity. As a matter of fact, in most jurisdictions don't need to have an architect on board. A civil engineer can snap the drawings. Uh, so it's in and the profession, I've been heavily involved in the professions of the in the politics of the profession as well as the regulatory side of the profession, it's uh, uh, it's a profession which has uh, backed itself into a real corner, they've lost their technical skills. But the long and the short of it is, I realized if you really wanted to have an impact as an architect, you really also had to be a developer, because you had to be able to produce something that you had the ability to design, and so uh, that's why I became a developer, because that's, if you want to have an impact, you have to be a
1: developer, not an architect. So you could bring your pure design vision to life? Yes. Because I find that with some designers, that they have a, a view in their mind about a pure design that they might put together, but that may not fit in with what the developer yeah, exactly. needs and to and produce in order so to So when you be said pure,
0: pure vision, my hackles went up a little bit, because no, you don't want something that's pure. Uh, but I I, uh, uh, I will always be proud to call myself an architect because architects are supposed to
1: be problem solvers
0: and supposed to be master builders.
1: Well, problem solving I think is perhaps the number one skill that property developers need to have. Yes,
0: yes absolutely. And architects don't have that. They, they look at uh, I've been on accreditation visits to a couple of schools of architecture, and they always talk about the critical thinking abilities of architects or architectural students. And I oh, I just put thumbs down on that because they don't even get any constraints and I look at my son who's a an mathematician and, and a brilliant thinker and I look at my daughter who's a degree in comparative literature and now a lawyer they're the ones who do the critical thinking architects a lot of it's not critical thinking it's pie in the sky thinking excuse me I didn't wish to put down the profession of architecture <laughs> but uh, but uh, it's it's a profession that's uh, uh, is is not in good shape uh, having said that i i uh, i've studied uh, uh curriculum architecture schools in australia and i believe the curriculum's are very good
1: that's all right i find in any uh industry in any of the contractors that i use or i come across there's really good ones there's really average ones and then there's the great mass in between right, right. and you've also done some stuff in canada yes in, Tell us a little bit about in that. In Canada,
0: what I've done, is, unlike unlike San Francisco, which is building development up there, is doing land development, totally different character. And the uh, first project was a relatively flat site that I thought was going to be a piece of cake. Very, very easy to do compared to my experience on hilly sites and very, very rough government approvals until I discovered several things when the was of the project and a very high water table. I had to contend with that. There were three different gas lines going across the property, we had to mitigate the constraints of that. We had a creek flowing through the property, so we had a great deal of environmental concerns we had to reckon with, Uh, and uh, we've now been in the project for eight years, and we just have our first phase completed. What I thought was going to be uh, easy government approvals turned out to be a little more difficult, because we're about a hundred meters from a lake. Across a road from the lake and uh, we got word uh, as we were getting our first preliminary approvals that Alberta Environment did not want us to allow any nutrients into the water of the lake. So I had to come up with a new sewage treatment system which took uh, over a year to research and come up with some answers on that. So it was very, uh, uh, took a lot of research, a lot of innovation, a lot of problem solving.
1: So that means that you don't release sewage into any kind of pipes or. That's
0: correct. There are individual systems on each house, and we ended up using composting bins for the black water, and then a traditional um, dispersal at grade or underground, just underground for the gray water. And the big problem was how do we get the black water from the toilet to the composting bin? Uh, because it's a traditional composting bin uh, and came across a Norwegian product called JETS which are used in, in Australia. The micro flush uh, Toilet uses about half of a liter of water per flush and it's vacuum driven So you don't have to worry about gravity feed and uh, you can use a much smaller pipe one and a half One and a half inch pipe as opposed to nominal two to four inch pipes for black water
1: Sounds very impressive. So you can, what do you have, what happens to the waste after it's put into a in
0: composting the- bin that takes uh,
1: uh,
0: two years to cure and after that you've got this beautiful compost material just like um, pop soil from good loam or uh, if you're in the woods it's like picking up the soil from the woods. It's just, and it's pristine, you can put it under your favorite rose bush or under your favorite tree. You can use it uh, in gardens as long as they're
1: not root vegetables. And so what, do you sell that off? No,
0: each homeowner has the option of putting it onto their own lot. It's very benign. And uh, one of the constraints was that the system has to be owned by a public utility company as opposed to by the homeowners, because it was very important for the whole system to be flush and forget. So a person flushes their toilet, the black water disappears, public utility person comes around once a month, to go into the composting room and to put more wood chips into the composting bin and to turn the compost.
1: So it's a communal bin? No.
0: That's, it is technically communal. And this is one of the ways that we were able to get this approved because the regulations say that you shall have communal wastewater and communal water systems. And they thought that automatically meant centralized where you have one great big composting plant or one Water, wastewater treatment plant in the center of the project. and But no, it turns out that communal actually means owned by the commune, owned by the commons. It does not mean centralized. So in our case, the units are in each individual house, in each individual lot, but the ownership is by the public utility company who own and manage those systems. So the owner pays a monthly utility fee
1: for the maintenance of them. I love it when a property developer comes up, to a, comes up with a solution to a problem that sort of is a little bit outside the scope of what was originally it's expected.
0: Outside the box.
1: Yeah. And tell us about some of the challenges that you face developing property in the North American markets.
0: In San Francisco uh, market is one of the things I learned, uh, you know, the first three rules of real estate, location, location, location. Well, the second three rules that are equally important is timing, timing, and timing. It doesn't matter how good the location is if the market's not there. And I've run into that, unfortunately, in at least one of my projects. And one could argue maybe one and a half of my projects. Fantastic location, fantastic product, but the market wasn't there. San Francisco hasn't had a down market in some time now, but back in the day, it used to be cyclical like most other places. Um, so that's something you... Uh, with the long lead time you have in projects, you don't know whether you're going to keep that good market or whether the market's going to go bad when you're halfway through construction.
1: And what did you learn from that?
0: What I learned from that is that there's a great deal of uncertainty in real estate development. Because I hit some of the, when the market was great, and then you just take orders, sell the units, and if the market's bad, then uh, it can be very, very difficult. Like first major project was just after the Iran-Contra. Excuse me, that's not Iran-Contra. It's the uh, the Iran uh, where they took the hostages and gasoline prices skyrocketed. Interest rates went up. And that first project, we were saved by the fact that we had a, a low interest rate construction loan for a fixed term. And that got us through almost the first year of our absorption period. But after that, our interest rate went to 22%. So, And we were living in the upper unit, one of the penthouse units that was part of the deal. With our, and my equity partners got a couple of units. Every night when I went to bed at night and took the light off, it was a $1,000 of interest out the window. Profit gone. So it's, it's, it's tough to plan, although savvy investors and really savvy people, they sort of look at the trends in the marketplace and they try and predict that the next downturn is going to come within nine months or within a year or whatever. And if one is fortunate enough to be able to see that and it's predictable, then you could hold off on construction until things have bottomed out and were starting to go up, as opposed to be close to the peak and starting to go down.
1: Any other things that you learned from those sort of difficult projects or that difficult time?
0: Um, As I mentioned in in our warm up to this conversation is I like to look at sites that um, take some innovation in the design and the construction methodology uh, because I find a lot of uh, real estate development is just a finance game and that the developer uh, knows how to finance but they hire good consultants in the form of architects and engineers and construction companies and their innovation occurs on the financing side. My innovation has occurred um, primarily on the problem-solving side during the design and construction, with the exception of one project where we had a heck of a time getting it financed because mm-hmm. the, the market was bad at that time and we hit it just right, but we could not get a, a site construction loan. So we had to go to a state-sponsored uh, type of financing called Mellow Roots, uh, which is that uh, you are allowed, when you do your subdivision, you can place a bond against the uh, against the property tax that's levied, a supplemental property tax that underwrites the bonds. And then you can use that bond money to put in your infrastructure. So that was one form of uh, financing they had to use.
1: So when you talk about finance being a risk, can you talk a little bit more about that? Because you said your architects and your consultants can help mitigate that because that's not something that I'm familiar with.
0: No, uh, what I was trying to refer to there is that a lot of development uh, does not take much innovation on the design and the construction side. It takes innovation on the financing side. So that's why you see a lot of people with MBAs as opposed to engineering degrees or architectural degrees or construction background going into real estate development because it's more of a numbers name, game and how you arrange the finance to make a
1: we're talking about bigger projects here, I'm guessing, or does that apply to well, smaller it's projects too?
0: Question of how you define bigger projects, but yes, they would be more enticed by the bigger projects because it takes just as much effort to do a small project as a big project and you just have to add zeros on it if it's bigger, and so therefore there's more money to be made or
1: lost. So and can you just talk me through some of the the innovation around financing that you've witnessed over the years?
0: Well, again, I would say that my strong suit is not being financing. Uh, it's been on the innovation side. But I did uh, mention one to you. And then, of course, you mentioned uh, mezzanine financing to me. Had to use that. We have a construction loan, and it runs out. Uh, and if you're doing condominiums development, of course, you can't take out long-term finance. So then you are forced to go to mezzanine financing, which is always a bit more expensive money. Um, and then you have to have, have it arranged properly so that um, how much, uh, how much of the sales proceeds are going to go to reducing that mezzanine debt? A lot of banks will look at they want every dollar that they can get out of it, whereas a more reasonable bank, they'll take 80%, and you, the developer, can keep 20%. So that's a that's a question, too, of, of your financial strength as a developer so that the bank knows that there's something more behind it than just the real estate.
1: And tell me, how does it work over here in, when you're looking at doing a project? Because in Australia, you have to have pre sales so you, you can get approval for a project and you might have 10, 15, 20 BX. units that are a, you that, have a permit but then before you can start construction the banks will require you to, it used to be around 80% but these days yeah. it's more like 100%. That,
0: that is the way it is in Canada right now and that's one of the problems I ran into uh, in my first development up there is that they wanted 80% pre-sales and it was just frankly not possible because we were a recreational property and we just could not meet that criteria. Uh, In the states, when I was doing, I haven't done anything in the last few little few years in the states. But when I was doing, there were no pre-sale requirements. And but having looked at that, in any event, just to reduce the risk uh, and uh, lower the cost of financing, what I discovered was that most buyers they can't visualize what they're getting from looking at a set of plans and even a three-dimensional model. They still have trouble realizing what it looks like. So I have seen many projects where you'll put up full-size models, by way of example, so people can actually go in and look at it, then you're looking at a bit of money to do that. But uh, no, I pre-sales I've always been a little leery of, and you mentioned also one of the problems if you're in a rising market, you have to sell at the current market rate, and then by the time you finish construction a year later, it may have increased in value by 5% or the market's really hot, 12 to 15% or whatever. And that's all money that goes into your into your buyer's pocket, as opposed to your own pocket.
1: Yeah, well, we've had instances in Australia in the sort of last year, two years, where prices have gone up 30 percent in a twelve to twenty-four month period, which is a lot of money. Yeah, to but on, miss out on.
0: unfortunately, on the reverse side, yeah, if the market's going down, then people will just walk away from their deposit, and you, the developer, are left holding
1: the bag. Yes, that is definitely the flip side of that. Yeah. And so tell us what it's like going through the permit application or the permit approval process over here.
0: California is one of the, the, California is where environmental impact reports were first required, very environmentally conscious. San Francisco, all of their rules and regulations are set up to protect the neighborhood or protect uh, the neighbors. Uh, It's very slanted against developers so you figure on a minimum of a year and a half to go through the approval process sometimes two years and in san francisco now it's gotten so difficult before you put in an application you have to put in a pre-application application application. it's multi-tiered and the planning code is i don't know i've lost count thousand pages two thousand pages deep it's just very uh cumbersome and and if if i was the king of this whole process any legislation or regulations that go in would have a sunset clause in them that they would automatically expire in 10 years, whatever it would be, unless they're reviewed and reapproved by the legislative body and perhaps modified and so forth. And I've been in one regulatory body where we were sunset every five years and we had to go through that process and be extended to six. But it was a very uh, worthwhile process because we had to look at the whole process and procedures, which uh, planning regulators and building code regulators are not subject to it. regulations just keep piling up uh, so it is a very arduous process uh, what I've learned is that you want to be totally transparent uh, because if you're not transparent and word gets out it's a small world and it'll come back to bite you in the butt and so even some things that aren't very pleasant better to make, be transparent about them and go to the potential opposition and Talk with them, find out what their concerns are, and try and mitigate their concerns. Some concerns aren't mitigatable, like lack of parking or more traffic. But most regulators and politicians are realizing that well, if you want to live in the city, that's what you get. Get more density. Get fewer parking places. You get more traffic.
1: Yeah, I feel. Australia, or particularly the Melbourne market is heading down that path where it's getting harder and harder to get permits it's become more and more complicated over time.
0: On well, the other thing, too, I've discovered, and this is, is it's a personal preference, but I think this is also widely held, that there are um, two types of beauty in the world. There's uh, beauty of the day or fashion of the day or... Uh, Beauty in the eyes of the beholder. And that changes from time to time, season to season, decade to decade. But there are also universal rules of beauty. And they are multicultural, uh, multinational, and um, are steadfast rules that have developed over the years. You know, like symmetry is a, is something that is beautiful. And so what I found is that in the design process, try and stick as close as you can to the universal elements of beauty as opposed to the stylish or faddish elements of beauty. Because you can look at buildings, and a lot of them you can identify when they were done just by the fad that they are, and some of those fads are discredited in a little while and you've got a building there that's not worthy of being there. So, uh, And then also, from a marketing point of view, if you're doing something that's faddish or stylish, you're going to capture... Some of the market, we believe in that. We're going to turn off some of the other parts of the market. Whereas they have something that's universal beauty, you got a higher shot of people looking at it and saying, "I like that." I can't articulate exactly why, but then a trained eye will look at that and they'll they'll give off the reasons for it. Well, so it's, it's it's uh, if it's a multi-story building, it's got a base, it's got a body, and it's got a capital, which are universal rules of design that goes back generations, or the symmetrical. Or if it's asymmetrical, it's got a balance to it. And fenestration, there's a sense of order to it. Or there's there's a harmony, there's rhythm, and there's melody, sort of like music, makes good architecture. And therefore, particularly someplace like Melbourne, which is getting grown up, it's not just the individual architecture of a building you look at. You have to look at the block as a whole or the neighborhood as a whole and start looking at urban design. Oftentimes, architecture and urban design can be in conflict, but they should not be. They should be uh, some continuity there. It took me a long time to understand why so many architects, uh, when they have a commission to renovate a building or to put in a new building on the block, that they do something that's totally out of character with the rest of the block. And I was discussing this with a renowned architect. He said, well, it's so much easier to put up a steel and glass building than it is to do something that's contextual and yet contemporary. I think it's better to do contextual and contemporary.
1: And you touched on markets and uh, buyers there. What kind of research or consideration do you give to who your buyers will be when you're doing the planning for your projects?
0: Well, there's, of course, a thing called a market survey where you... Go out and you hire someone to do it yourself, and uh, you look at the demographics of the market you're going into, where you look at the age of the people are going to be. And uh, if you're going after a senior market, of course, you want something that's entirely uh, accessible or adaptable from a handicap point of view, and aging in place is more of an issue now. But in uh, San Francisco, uh, it's if you have a good product. People don't really mind too much what neighbor in there because there are some really bad neighborhoods it used to be, there are fewer of them now. Uh, but it's it's some places it's tough to pin down. Boy, the example the project in Canada was referring to is uh, banks were classified as a recreational property because it's not in an existing neighborhood and it's across from the lake. And so we thought, well, we're gonna get 50% of our buyers are gonna be recreational, we're gonna come up on weekends or in the summertime and so forth. Uh, and so we we wanted to make sure we had some lots that were big enough to give people lots of free space, but not so large that our utility costs went all the way because everything's on a linear meter in that case. But the way in the market has ended up being primarily are younger couples with families. I, I thought the primary market was going to be people uh, who were in their 40s or so, and maybe it was their second or third house, and they flipped and raised equity and so forth and so on. No, most of them are second buyers with kids who are ranging from 3 to 10 years in age. So we did the market research there, but it didn't turn out to be correct. We're not suffering as a result of it because we have a good product. Uh, So to answer that question, I think probably where that's a little more appropriate would be in suburban developments where there's a lot more... uh, Variety of the type of products to go up uh, and the cost that's going to be associated with those products. So they they look at the demographics and the income levels of various people. So then they say, okay, we're going to go after first time buyers and houses have to be this size, and not any bigger because the cost goes up. So they do a lot more of the market research you're talking about. Uh, I would think it's something like that. In the city, it's much less of an issue.
1: And what role do real estate agents play? in selling here?
0: In selling, well, very very much so. But what I was also gonna say we mentioned that is you also want to have real estate, good real estate brokers involved during the design process because in many respects, uh, they know a lot more about design and architects floor plans by way for example. Yeah. Uh, so I always try to get brokers involved very, very early on in the process. And yes, with regard to sales the competitive marketplace, uh, this is, uh, I've, I've had some bad ones and got rid of them as soon as I could and you look for the ones with a good track record who know the, the neighborhood and the demographics of the market you're after so yes I say a real estate broker is an essential part of the team on the other hand uh, me being an architect as well I see that the commissions that real estate brokers get they end up making more money than the architect does on these projects they don't take any risk no liability so on and, and one hand, I say, well, my gosh. So if you have a project that's large enough, better to have your in-house salespeople and cooperate with buying brokers so that you don't turn off the buying brokers. You can offer them a little more than a 50-50 split they you would normally get, and you don't have to stay as much on your own end because it's handled in-house.
1: So can you just walk me through that? Because... That doesn't sound like um, how it's done in Melbourne or in Australia.
0: Well, well typically, if you have a smaller project, you uh, sign up with a real estate uh, broker, and they, depending on what kind of commission they're getting, they'll provide all the brochures and do the advertising for the sales, or you, the developer, do it, they get less, effic- less efficacious. And then typically, that, that commission is split 50-50 between your broker who's doing the selling and the buyer's broker. You split the commission typically 50-50. And in San Francisco, it's traditionally been 6%. That's a big whop. 6% of the sale price? Yes, yeah, 6% of the sales price. Okay. An architect lucky to get 6% of the, <laughs> of the construction cost, which is half of what the sales price is, rule of thumb. So, yeah, if uh, and uh, I would encourage... Every developer to also become a real estate broker. So you have a license. And then you have the option of doing your sales yourself or someone under your supervision, and you can cut your costs down quite a bit. Same thing with being a builder. I'd be a builder too next to go (laughs) around. Because uh, a contractor takes anywhere from 10 to 15% off the top. Keep it in your own pocket by being your own uh, contractor. Vertically integrate vertically.
1: Yeah, that's definitely an ideal structure for a complete developer. Well, in Australia, the builder takes on a lot of the responsibility, actually, and a lot of the liability for the building.
0: Yes. Oh, yes. They take liability here also. But that, that does not mean the developer is removing that liability. The, in, in, in California, the architect, the architect that signs those drawing, has unlimited liability. They can't be protected by a corporate shield contractor can be protected by a corporate shield and developer can be protected by a corporate shield you know, so one of the rules there is if you're doing any good sized project you form a separate corporation for each, each development
1: Well that's interesting because in Melbourne the developer doesn't carry a significant deal of risk on the construction actually once it's done providing that it's been built to specification, which gets signed off by an engineer. So once it's built and sold, the developer actually doesn't have any responsibility anymore.
0: Yeah, in Canada that's largely the case, not in the States. Uh, they can go, but there again, the developer can have uh, a corporate shell to protect himself. The design professionals cannot.
1: And so how do you generally structure your projects and the deals that you put together together? Do you bring in equity partners or yes. finance investors? How does it sort of, yes. what's uh, a sort of common approach here?
0: Uh, two common approaches are to form a limited partnership where you, as a developer, are the general partner and you have sole management authority, and the investors are silent partners, limited partners. And their, their liability is limited to the cash that they have in the deal. It's a general partner, you get unlimited liability. The other one is to form a corporation and you have shareholders. you you have a development agreement and a management agreement, so you as a developer end up calling all the shots. And then, depending on who the investors are, some of them may have, um, depending on how you structure it, uh, if the developer has no money in it or very little money in it, the investors may have the ultimate say on big big decisions. But if it's structured properly, they'll look upon you as a developer having the expertise, and it will take a lot for them to override any recommendation you as a developer are making.
1: And so when you say they take shares, does that mean they just put in capital and then get a split of all the profit, or is that money put in as...
0: You know, that's, again, the the way you structure the whole thing. Um, My deals, uh, what typically do is give the investors a preferential return. They get X percent per year, simple interest, uh, before there's any distribution of profit above that. So, they get, they, so and the, the idea there is that the developer can't make a big profit at the expense of the investors. They will get their capital back. They'll get a preferential return back, and the developer is getting a fee, a development fee, but the developer doesn't get any share of the profit until such time as the investors get their preferential return, and then after that, you have a split. And it's usually structured in such a way that developers get their preferential return, and then... After that, the developer gets a big chunk of the profit until he catches up with with the investors and then there's a split after that.
1: And what would that split be? So is that on the net profit or the gross profit, oh, something profit, like that?
0: Net profit. And Take what would it be? Expenses. Take all your expenses out first.
1: What sort of percentage are we talking about, the split there?
0: Well, with the, uh, some projects used to be 50-50 and it's a question of what the preferential return for the investor is. Things have gotten much more difficult now and financiers have gotten much more savvy. Uh, and it's, so, that, so that's a bit of a variable. One of the variables there too is how much of the fee is the developer getting out of it. Uh, some developers are also builders. They take a lower fee and they get a higher share of the profits. Um, project I'm in right now, there's a preferential uh, interest and then there's a 50-50 split after things get equalized and then it's done in such a way as after the investor gets an 18% internal rate of return it switches to 60-40 and then after they get 24% it goes to 25 to them and 75 to the developer so for the boom times both parties make out. like but if it takes a long time to go through the process and there's a lot of investor money in as opposed to construction loans then the preferential return can make it more So that's, that's a really, uh, a couple of valu- variables in there to really get into the calculus.
1: There's many variables in yes. developing. Kirk. Yes. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and tell me, what do you think you've learned about yourself along the way?
0: <laughs> Boy, I didn't realize this. We're going to get into psychological questions here.
1: <laughs> oh, so psychological? <laughs> you've probably learned a little bit about yourself along the journey.
0: You never know as much as you think you know, uh, and you have to admit
1: uh, that when
0: you don't know something. You have to say so, but then your response should be, "I don't have the answer to that question, but I know where to find the answer to that question." Uh, one must always be an optimist, or you wouldn't be in that game. Because when you look at that glass of water, that's half full, is it half empty or half full? Uh, you have to be. You have to be tenacious. Uh, you can never give up, you uh, lose some sleep along the way, uh, but you have to get up and fight and you have to be resilient and you have to be a real problem solver and you have to listen to people. Not to just what they're saying, but you have to read their body language, uh, you have to understand what they aren't telling you but what they mean. Uh, So you have to become a reader of people and a reader of situations. You have to learn how to be a diplomat. You have to learn how to be a politician because so many of the decisions are political in nature as opposed to legal in nature. And I'm in one situation now. The law is all on my side. I'm fighting the bureaucracy, and that's a tough one to overcome. So... um, Have I answered that question or given you enough?
1: Yeah, I think so. So if you could go back to the start of your career with the knowledge that you've got now, what things would you tell yourself or what would you do differently?
0: Uh, I would integrate vertically earlier. Uh, I realized that one of the things that myself and my ex-partner have is that we were well grounded in design and um, I think that's one of the reasons why we were su- as successful as we were and, and why I'm still in the game is because it allows one to uh, look at potential projects and projects you have uh, and gives you a better ability to solve some design problems and come up with a better product because I will always say that Good design costs no more to construct than bad design. And I'm involved in a situation now where a church is, is doing the development. I've sort of taken on the lead to be the design guru or the development guru because of my experience. And we're dealing with a developer who's very, very successful, but a... They can't tell good design from bad design, and also we have an architect on board. Our joint venture partner has an architect on board who's just steeped in modernistic architecture, and they're totally missing a point with what the city regulators want, what the city council wants, what our neighbors want, and what we want. And so I'm having to go through a real learning process with that architectural firm. Um, So... Uh, that's been a real asset and also when I was in architecture school I spent a third of one year in business school taking financing courses just to be able to understand what the financing game was all about. Uh, One thing I was short on was construction background um, but picked up rather rapidly and uh, look back at some of my summers where I helped construct a house once with my big brother. So I think it's important to um, understand all aspects of the real estate development process one way or another because you have to manage them all and some people are just experts in one area and then a little shorty So I think it's good to be well balanced in all the aspects of the process
1: and is that what they mean when they talk about value management is that about managing the architects managing the builders so that you get the most value well
0: you're the business you're the business person i have to ask you where that term comes from what that term means uh value management. Uh, I guess that would probably be a good definition you just gave, is you know enough. See, a lot of a lot of managers come up through a specialty and then they take on the old organization and then they have to learn those other parts, but they've got the skills to be able to tell the good from the bad. But I think you've articulated it well. You have to know enough about design, you have to know enough about construction, you have to know enough about finance, you have to know enough about marketing, enough about government approvals to be able to uh, manage each of those and to know enough about it. By way of example, I find I know... Uh, I can see something uh, from a legal point of view more better than some attorneys can because they're so looking at the law that they can't see the trees because they're so far into the forest. Whereas someone with a broader background, like a real estate developer who's doing many different situations, can sometimes identify a legal problem before the attorneys can or a solution to the legal problem.
1: So tell us, with all your experience, what one tip would you give a developer out there to help them take their developing to the next level.
0: You're talking about Joe Blow developer? or
1: no, Someone that um, takes developing seriously, is, would consider themselves a professional.
0: I, w- I would think that that word you just use professional, is one thing. I'm dealing with a potential client playing the role of master developer, uh, sorry, master architect and development manager, where that, uh, what I've discovered, and he's, he's not a developer per se, but he wants to become one, uh, he has some ethical issues, so I think it's very important as a developer to have ethics, have a good moral compass, because at the counteract uh reputation that a lot of uh, that development as a as a class has is that they're just money grabbers and they'll do anything they can to get that bottom dollar and i think uh the attitude should be more that we are have to put up a quality product that respects the neighborhood uh, respects the environ uh is done tastefully and that if uh obviously you have to have it penciled out when you start but that if you do a good project I like to think you'd make more money than if you do a bad project. So I think integrity, professionalism, uh, honesty, transparency, um, understanding your strengths, uh, and putting a team together that is well-balanced and give you, the developer, uh, different points of view so you can evaluate those different points of view to come up with the right decision. You don't want a bunch of yes people, yes men.
1: Very good. Well, Kirk Miller, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us here on the Property Developer Podcast. I pre- appreciate you sharing your thoughts and insight with us. My pleasure. And good luck with the developing around North America. And good luck with you in Melbourne, which is a great city as I understand it. Thanks, Kirk. Okay, there you go. I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Kirk Miller. I thought it was fascinating hearing about the similar and different challenges that Kirk faces being a developer. Having recently wandered around San Francisco, I can see the physical constraints of the place, being extremely hilly in many areas, but also hearing about the political and social constraints that make it very hard to get permits to develop profitable projects. Which is interesting given the housing pressure the city is facing. In many ways, it reminded me of the challenges Melbourne faces but we certainly don't have the physical constraints of San Francisco. Here are a couple of points I took away from my chat with Kirk. One, understand the approval process of your area. Kirk talked about how involved the local community is in the planning process in San Francisco. This requires developers to fully engage with the people who live in the area. By understanding this, you can set your timeframes accordingly and be aware of what you will need to go through to get approval whether this is pre-application meetings, community consultation sessions, or public feedback periods. You can then allow sufficient budget for redesigns or adjustments, ensure you get the right people on your team, and allocate the right time before you actually get an approval. 2. Explore how innovation can get you ahead. Kirk discussed how certain types of innovation can turn an ordinary project into a great one, whether that is design innovation or financial innovation. Kirk mentioned how he found a creative solution to a waste issue that helped get his project a permit. So explore how you can find the right people who can really help take your project to the next level. And this really involves getting out and talking to people in the industry to find out who the best practitioners are in the field. Keep digging and eventually you will unearth the gold. Three, if you want to be a pro, then act like a pro. If you want to be a serious developer, then you need to act like a professional developer. Do proper due diligence on your possible sites, have the right people in place on your team, follow a process to ensure you get consistent results, and take your developing activities seriously. The people you deal with when you are doing a project, or looking to get a project off the ground, will quickly be able to determine if you are serious or not. So if you want to be an elite developer, better start acting like one. Okay, that's episode 34, almost done. Remember, you can catch me on Instagram at Property Developer Podcast for my latest pics and videos, and you can find all the past episodes of the show over at www.propertydeveloperpodcast.com. You may like to go back to my two-part discussion with developer David Bradley in episodes 21 and 22 to learn about the velocity of money and becoming a serious property developer. Thanks again for listening in. And until next time, may all your projects achieve better results than you expected. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas, and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.